when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today I'm talking with Jonathan Cantor, the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Antitrust Division at the Department of Justice. Alongside Federal Trade Commission Chair Lena Kahn, Cantor is one of the most prominent figures in the big shift happening in competition in antitrust law in the United States. This is a fun episode. Cantor and I taped this conversation live on stage at the Digital Content Next Conference in Charleston, South Carolina, just a few days ago. So you'll hear the audience, which was a group of fancy media company executives. You'll also hear me joke about Google a few times. Fancy media executives are very interested in the two cases the Department of Justice has brought against Google, one for monopolizing search and another for monopolizing advertising technology. I asked about these cases several times. Cantor was very good at not commenting on active litigation. But those cases are evidence of Cantor's major charge when it comes to competition in tech and media. Between the FTC and the DOJ, the United States government has blocked a record number of mergers in the past few years. You'll hear us talk about the DOJ preventing Big Five book publisher Penguin Random House from acquiring its competitor Simon & Schuster, a case Cantor says was designed to protect authors from their payments getting lower. You'll hear us really talk about that in the concept of monopsony. Not monopoly, monopsony. In the same way a monopoly is a market with one powerful seller, a monopsony is a market with one powerful buyer. Tech giants in particular can end up becoming that powerful buyer. And you'll hear Cantor talk about how that can really distort a market. Of course, this is Decoder, so we talked about what the antitrust division really is and how it's organized. You'll hear Cantor point out that the antitrust division has fewer people in it than it did in 1979, despite how much bigger and more complicated the economy and, frankly, the world have gotten. He's also pretty confident that the new theories about antitrust he and others are bringing up make antitrust enforcement more accessible than it's ever been. I also asked him how he makes decisions, and, well, let's just say he's got his hands on his hips. Okay, U.S. Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor. Here we go. All right, 
30 minutes of avoiding questions about Google. All right. Now. Let's start. Uh, Go. <laughs> so we are going to run this on Decoder, the podcast. There are two questions I ask everybody on Decoder, which I think Jonathan will help us understand a lot of the things that you are up to right now. So the first one, uh, you are the Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust, the Department of Justice. How is your division structured? How does that work? Sure. So we are a division um, of over 800 people. Um, and we are a lot of lawyers, enforcement lawyers, who focus on antitrust enforcement. We have roughly 50, 50 PhD economists. Uh, we have data analysts, data scientists. Um, we have an amazing support team, amazing group of paralegals. Some of the smartest people that I've ever met and ever had the honor of working with are at the antitrust division. And so um, we are, the way I would think about our, our organization is in a few different um, ways. First, we have uh, civil antitrust enforcement, and that includes mergers. And so if there's a big merger, we review that merger, and then um, if necessary, take action to block that in court. Um, we do monopolization investigations. I know that's something um, that I look forward to avoiding your questions about later. Um, and we talk about, we, we investigate uh, big monopolies, uh, the, the standard oil uh, AT&Ts of our era. Uh, and then we have um, criminal antitrust enforcement. And so these are companies that engage in price fixing and market allocation uh, and certain kinds of fraud. Uh, and then we have an advocacy policy arm, and that focuses on international. We live in a global world economy, uh, and there are antitrust and competition law regimes all over the world, and we have to coordinate our work there. Um, we focus on providing technical assistance to Congress on legislation, and then just feeding the, the discourse and dialogue around um, antitrust and making sure that um, competition policy uh, in our country uh, is sound. There is a lot of renewed discourse around competition policy, both in our country and around the world. One thing you pointed out to me just a minute ago was 800-some uh, people is still relatively small. right? The amount of emphasis we're putting in antitrust does not actually match yeah. the investment. So just for a little bit of um, context, uh, the antitrust division today, all right, and we've been uh, in existence for over 100 years, we are over 200 people smaller than we were in 1979, right? So think about we had more than 200 people, um, we were more than 200 people larger in 1979. Um, not only was um, uh, the economy much smaller then, but the kinds of issues that we're confronting now uh, are, are extraordinarily complex. The amount of data, the amount of information that we have to consume, ingest, and review in the course of uh, reviewing even a merger. The merger economy has changed. Um, so we, uh, our folks are, are constantly uh, charged with um, doing a lot with very little. Um, and then obviously it puts an important emphasis on prioritization. I assume you picked 1979 because in 1980 Ronald Reagan was elected. Is that uh, when it started you, going you, down? Uh, that, is, uh, that would coincide, yes. All right, fair enough. Uh, the second question I ask everybody on Decoder, and I I think is very important here to understand. How do you make decisions? You have a lot of pretty market-moving decisions to make all the time. What's your framework for making those choices? Yeah. So the 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 good news is that's kind of embedded in uh, in in our mission. And so, you know, everything that we do starts and finishes with the facts and the law, 
right? And so what does the law say? What did Congress write? And how has that been interpreted by courts? Uh, and then how do we fit the facts into any given situation? Um, now, obviously, there's a lot more that goes into that. And um, we've developed a methodology that I call HIPS, tell everybody to keep their hands on their hips. Uh, it stands for high impact, programmatically significant. And so when we think about a matter that we're um, um, investigating and we think about our scarce resources and how to deploy them, uh, we think about, okay, well, what's gonna have a big impact on society, right? And that could be in terms of um, the amount of commerce it affects, uh, but it could also be about the, the kind of uh, industry. And so, you know, news and journalism, for example, it's the raw material of our democracy and the marketplace of ideas is vital to, you know, a thriving free society. And so that is um, high impact. Similarly, um, you know, the PS stands for programmatically significant. And so as a law enforcement organization, we need to make sure that we are, you know, bringing cases that enable the law to develop in a way that's healthy uh, and adapts to current market realities. And so, um, you know, we bring those cases that, um, that we believe are important to establishing the kinds of precedents that allow the antitrust law to evolve the way it was intended to by Congress and to make sure that we are adapting it to market realities and deterrence. And I will, this is important, which is, you know, the best, um, uh, most successful work we can do is to keep the bad stuff from happening in the first place. And whether that's a merger that never sees the light of day uh, because of antitrust risk or a company that doesn't engage in an antitrust violation because they've invested in compliance. So that's, that's the, that's the win-win scenario for everyone. All right, I wanna talk about deterrence first, and then I wanna talk about some bad things that have already happened that you're, you're trying to stop. Deterrence, I think the best example is you stopped the Penguin merger with Simon & Schuster. What were the bad things you saw coming that you think you stopped there by blocking Yeah, the so that was a really important matter for us. Um, uh, it was a merger of book publishers, and we brought that case on a theory that was successful. We asserted correctly that was rooted uh, in well-established legal principles, but we didn't bring the case based on a theory that book prices were going to go up. We brought the case based on the theory that advances to professional authors who relied on advances in order to fund uh, the development and research and writing of their books would go down. It was what we in our um, wonky way call labor monopsony case. Uh, and so uh, we were preserving the market to make sure that people who create things for a living have enough competition to be compensated for the value of their creations. So that's a really important idea that I, I want to stay centered on as we talk, because the idea that it's the buyers who are consolidating and they're the demand will go down, or the price the demand is willing to pay will go down. I think it's very relevant to everybody in this room because our buyers have traditionally been large platforms, right? And our direct relationship with our customers, maybe we're all trying to build them now, but our buyers have, for the past decade have been large platforms. So get ready. Yeah, I'm ready. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, Cantor and I get into the DOJ's cases against Google. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, 
Wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back with the DOJ Antitrust Division head, Jonathan Cantor, to talk about the antitrust cases against Google and the DOJ and FTC's track record so far. All right. You've got two cases right now that you've got going. The case against Google for search monopolization has come to a close. We're waiting on a decision. And you're about to go to trial on the ad tech case against Google. Why did you choose to bring these cases? So... uh it is. Um, was it was it for the same reason that you see the demand side changing dramatically, or yeah. were there different? So theories? let me let me zoom out uh, yeah. to a higher altitude. Um, as you anticipated and previewed, I can't talk about any ongoing matters or pending cases. You have to drink now. And Can so um, that's I need a little horn to honk every time I say <laughs> that. But, but I think it's, it's helpful to think about this contextually. It is public record that we have those cases. It is public record that we've gone to court uh, and filed complaints to address these important industries. Uh, and I think it's self-evident, including to this audience, is, you know, why we should care about markets that involve the flow of information, markets that involve uh, advertising, which is so important to monetize the kind of uh, information that um, companies like the ones in this room run to produce uh, in, for, to better society through the distribution of journalism. One of the themes I think we're seeing in a lot of cases, and this is not just in tech and media, but it's, it's uh, throughout the economy, are intermediaries, right? Intermediaries who um, are becoming more powerful than the products and services or the, the entities they intermediate. Uh, and I think that's a phenomenon that's a result of a lot of developments in technology and the law 
um, not to, sorry, technology and the economy, um, where um, I think you know you used to have a lot of one-for-one transactions, but now you have a lot of one-for-many. You have platforms. You have entities that sit in the middle and that generate revenue from aggregation rather than production. And so um, that's changed market realities. And I think a lot of the cases that we're bringing, um, a lot of the merger matters that we're um, pursuing and challenges that we're bringing, not all of them, but many of them relate to these kinds of these intermediary markets. And in a lot of those markets, the intermediary is both a buyer and a seller. Um, and you know, increasingly, when platforms can exert massive amount um, of control and asymmetry, asymmetry of power over um, people who supply that platform, uh, it becomes you know, a real concern. Um, and we hear from businesses a lot that these intermediary markets and the establishment of these dominant intermediaries can have a negative effect on their ability to distribute, grow, and invest. So if you don't like this pattern in digital media, you call it a monopsony. If you think it's the natural order of the internet, you might call it by another name. My friend Ben Thompson calls it aggregation theory, that you aggregate all the demand and suddenly you have a lot of power over your suppliers, you can raise prices. And that comes from building a superior user interface or a superior user experience. And this is why Apple just pays Google for search, right? They build the best search products, so they're just gonna keep using it, that's gonna feed data back into it. This is their argument. You look at that and you say, no, this is a problem. This is artificially distorting the market in some way. Is there a balance there or is it, are you? Yeah, so the balance is, you know, we believe in full-throated competition, right? And that means we don't pick winners and losers, but, you know, sometimes someone will win and sometimes someone won't win. We want folks duking it out and competing in a very vibrant, um, full-throated way. And, um, you know, that can... Uh, and the law, right, Congress, going back to 1890 and updated many times since, has made a judgment that, you know, a, a competitive economy is one that provides opportunity. Uh, it's one that is consistent with the values of a free and open democracy. And so, um, yeah, like companies can get big on the merits of their own innovations, but when companies start using contracts and payments um, and start um, engaging in moat building in order to preserve their monopolies from disruption, uh, from competition, uh, from disintermediation. Those are the kinds of things that turn from being competition on the merits uh, to anti-competitive conduct that can violate the law. One of the approaches you and uh, Chairman Khan have taken as you've been in charge of competition policy in the country is I would say the pendulum has swung since 1979, right? It was a very permissive environment under the Biden administration, less permissive environment, more things are blocked or challenged or uh, enforcement actions are taken. I would say the record there is spotty, right? There's been some wins, there's been some losses. On balance, do you think you've pushed the the pendulum to a healthier place? Yeah, I'm really proud of of our results. So um, we've when we think about the mergers that we've successfully challenged in court, and there have been a number of high-profile victories, including uh, most recently our victory in court against the JetBlue Spirit merger, um, the Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, the American Airlines JetBlue transaction. When we think about the wave of deals that have been abandoned either after we filed litigation or in the face of it, including recently in the tech space, the Adobe Figma matter. Um, uh, but you know, there have been a number of matters, including in the supply chain area involving ocean shipping. Uh, CIMC Maersk comes to mind. 
cargo tech cone cranes and a number of other transactions where in, in um, looking down the possibility of litigation, the companies decide not to pursue those transactions. We're also hearing that, um, that enforcement of the law is having its anticipated effect uh, of deterrence. And so when companies are considering uh, a merger, they consider antitrust risk uh, as a real factor. And if a merger is gonna roll up um, a, an industry, if a merger is going to reinforce the dominant position of a platform, if the merger is going to enable a firm to exercise monopsony power over um, key participants in its ecosystem, uh, then um, more uh, than we've seen any time in recent memory, uh, um, companies are choosing to either compete uh, rather than merge or they're finding another dance partner, uh, one that doesn't raise those competitive concerns. And I think when we look at the entire body of, of uh, work, at least that I've been involved in, uh, which is now a little over two years, you know, we see trial victories, we see updated merger guidelines, we see abandoned transactions, we see deterrence. Those are the ingredients of success. And I'm really proud of the work that our team has done um, to achieve that level of notable success. I will also say this, and I think this is really important, and it's something I think that a lot of folks um, here in the room today and certainly listening understand. These issues are more accessible than they've ever been. Um, when I started practicing antitrust, it was in the late 90s, it was this wonky, technical, technocratic, insular area that was largely occupied by a you know, small group of people inside the Beltway in New York um, and occasionally San Francisco. Um, but it was really uh, limited, and that was due to a vocabulary that was exclusionary. Um, and I think what we've seen is um, over the last number of years, more people feel affected by monopoly power. More people are see their lives uh, worse off because of concentration of power uh, and control. And, and by people, I don't just mean people who go and buy something at a store or online. I mean people who uh, work hard for a living uh, as laborers, people who create the creative economy, perhaps more than any other, um, has experienced firsthand the harm and the, the threat of monopoly power. And the resonance that these issues have is um, something that I've never witnessed in my lifetime. And I think that is a significant change that animates a lot of the success that we're having on the field with our matters. Yeah, I will say that when I was, uh, I was not a good law student, I majored in Miller Lite, um, but when I was in, <laughs> that's true, uh, when I was in law school over 20 years ago, uh, antitrust was described to me as a math class. And it feels like maybe not the place it occupies anymore. So I've been to about 20 or so law schools and business schools over the last year alone. Um, it's been eye-opening. So people often ask me, are, okay, are we, you know, are we, you know, is this a transition period? Is this an inflection point? And I say, yes, but we're just at the beginning. Yeah. Right? And the, the, the energy that's coming from students who care about these issues because they care about the problem as opposed to thinking about antitrust as a math class that you can take in order to get a high paying job. Yeah. It's, it's, it's different today than it's been in, in, uh, in many years. This is a room full of media executives. Uh, this industry is under a lot of pressure. There are probably some conversations about consolidation happening in and around this room. How should, this, how should the media industry think about consolidation? There's a lot of idea that maybe we can get a leverage against a Google 
or another distributor if we actually get yeah. bigger ourselves? So every matter, we again, we start with the facts and the law, what's yeah. happening here. I think the... Um, you know, the, we would rather a market that's competitive, and we think that's the best solution. To a, a, when, when the problem is not enough competition, the answer is often um, not to create less competition. Now, I know that's not always that simple, but one of the things that I've talked about a lot is why it's important to make sure that we're enforcing the law against monopolies so that the only way to compete and survive isn't to merge. We want to promote... Uh, a competition and a law enforcement regime that creates enough opportunity for as many companies to compete without having to merge with their competitors. We're talking here a day or two after uh, Disney, Warner, a handful of the other streaming giants of sports rights announced a big tie-up. We're going to make a new sports bundle for people. This is an old idea that sounds very new and sounds very good, but we're going to try it again. Does that raise any red flags for you? The, um, as a sports fan. In the sport of um, public speaking and podcasting, uh, I'm going to uh, exercise my all-star ability not to answer your question. Drink a drink. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back to get into European antitrust enforcement and how it differs from the approach of the FTC and the DOJ here in the United States. Once upon a time in America, there was no such thing as all-you-can-eat shrimp. And then the world changed. Today, shrimp is the most popular, the most consumed seafood in America. The endless shrimp fiesta is an American institution. But that shrimp fiesta comes at a steep price. Here at Gastropod, we found out that hidden behind the delicious shrimp on your plate is environmental disaster and modern-day slavery. So can you have your shrimp and a clear conscience, too? Actually, yes, and we've got the secret to help you unlock true, lifelong shrimp happiness. Listen to the latest episode of Gastropod wherever you get your podcasts. We're back talking with Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor about the lessons he's learned from European antitrust enforcement. All right, I'm going to try, I'm going to try another way at this. All right, go for it. The I can do this all day. Do you know, know the code name for a decoder is Neli versus media training? That's what our team calls it. And if I get to consistently a draw, we're doing a good job. The United States, you mentioned the Adobe Figma deal. Adobe just openly blamed that on European enforcement. We did, we, Dana Rao, Adobe's general counsel, was actually on decoder. He said, we evaluated it. We could not find a way to meet the standard that Europe was trying to impose on us. And his description of it was, they thought Figma could be a big company and we could not prove that negative. Right, that Figma would be better off with us. And they walked away from the deal. Europe is kind of leading the charge here, at least from my perspective. Right? They are doing that enforcement. They are setting those standards. I want to talk about the Digital Markets Act with you for sure. Europe has also spent a decade trying to get people to not use Google, like aggressive interventions on people's computers. They design browser ballots on Android phones. They, they ask you if you want to use the Play Store or not. They've mostly failed. After a decade of intense interventions, people in Europe, as far as I can tell, still use Google. They do not use Bing. I know they don't use Bing, but they definitely use Google. Does that strike you as, okay, that's actually the wrong way to do it, like these aggressive interventions? Is there a better way? So the, um, 
you know, these are complex questions yeah. and we have different legal regimes. Uh, we work very well with our counterparts in Europe, including on that matter you mentioned regarding Adobe Figma. We issued our press release. Um, our process was not uh, public, but um, we discussed the importance of that merger, uh, our process as well. I think um, we all work within the confines of the tools we have yeah. and the legal and regulatory regimes that are uh, binding in our country. And so here um, in the United States, in the absence of new regulation and laws, we have our antitrust framework. And that's one that says, okay, we're not gonna prescribe outcomes. We're not gonna pick winners and losers. And we're gonna, for the most part, disfavor, um, you know, telling people how to run their businesses. Instead, we're going to uh, rely on a competitive market um, to, um, fuel innovation and to give different parts of the market the opportunity to discipline other parts of the market. That only works if you have a competitive economy. And so um, my job, at least, is to make sure that we are um, enforcing the law to uh, preserve competition, uh, to promote it, and make sure that you know, competition can work to generate these benefits for uh, folks more broadly. You know, obviously, there. There's been discussion of legislation uh, in the United States. We've weighed in um, the department on some of that, certainly in the last Congress. Europe has its own um, pathway. Um, you know, we are, we are at this moment in a regime that focuses on, on uh, enforcement, and that's, those are the tools we have. Those are the tools we're going to use. When you look at some of the proposed legislations out there, I picked the Journalism Competition Preservation Act, JCPA. Uh, that, you know, that mirrors legislation that we've seen around the world in Australia and other places. We're going to allow this group of producers to go negotiate as a block to get favorable terms from platforms. Do you see that as a useful tool that would actually enable the kind of competition you're talking about? Or do you see that as a prescription or a tax? So ultimately, again, decisions about legislation are made by Congress. Um, we provide technical assistance to Congress when they consider these kinds of legislation. I, I, I will say that I think what we're talking about here, um, you know, and this is not specific to the legislation, but I think it's, it's um, symptomatic of the, of the, the issue, are, are asymmetries of power, right? And so when a company or intermediaries have so much power that they can extract um, prices or terms that are um, unfavorable to a wide range of a market, that is often viewed as a market failure. Um, and how you deal with a market failure can be through a mixture of legislation and regulation. Um, and I think there are lots of different um, theories and many um, college and PhD courses on taught on how to deal with that. And Do you think the journalism market has failed? I think that um, journalism is probably the most it is one of the most important industries in our country. Uh, it is not just vital to um, a, a, you know, an informed society. It's an, vital to a democratic free society. And so um, if, if monopolization and harm to competition is harming journalism, if it means that um, companies can't invest in um, original journalism, in the kind of reporting um, and infrastructure that is necessary 
not just on a national level, but on a local level, to keep our country free of corruption, to make sure that our political discourse is, is well-informed, um, to make sure that um, people can learn about exciting new things, to make sure that we can vote in an informed way. Like those are, it, it's hard to imagine something that's more important or critical to the fabric of our nation. And so, you know, going back to my hands on hips, if something is um, affecting in a meaningful, deep way, um, the journalism industry in our country, we, yeah, that's really important. Yeah. Uh, one of the... One of the tools that is available in Europe now is something called the Digital Markets Act. It is, again, a very aggressive intervention into the market. It classifies certain companies as gatekeepers, particularly Apple is a gatekeeper uh, for the App Store and other parts of their platform. It says you have to open up, you have to allow these other sources of competition to uh, arrive. You're looking at it as an outsider, I understand we don't have that here. But Apple is doing something that uh, I've heard described as malicious compliance. They're saying, we're going to comply with the DMA technically, but actually it's so hard to take advantage of the openness that's being imposed on our platform that you're better off just sticking with us. When you look at that from your perspective, do you say, okay, the DMA is the right start, but it has more to go, or this is the wrong choice? Um, so again, it's hard to sit here on this side of the Atlantic and... and um no, Americans criticizing Europeans is uh, firmly in our national tradition, sir. <laughs> um, so I get, I'll, I'll talk about it from my perspective, which is um, the DMA is a fact, right? It exists in Europe. Uh, and it, we are watching with great interest as um, it, it comes into um, effect. And we're watching with great interest to see how companies... Um, comply or not comply with the DMA. And, and how they do that teaches us a lot. It teaches us a lot about our own remedies. It can teach us a lot about what's possible, what's not possible. It can teach us a lot about what companies can do to make life difficult for uh, would-be competitors or uh, competitive disruptions. These are all facts. And we gather those facts, and then we use that to reach an informed conclusion based on our laws in the United States. In this early period, what do you think you've learned so far about the DMA? Uh, we're watching with great interest. Well done. Uh, <laughs> all right. We're going to have a few questions from the audience. If you're listening to this on Decoder, we're going to cut this off now because the audience is off the record. So thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor for taking the time to join me on stage at the DCN Conference. I'd like to thank the DCN Conference for having us. I'd also like to thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. In case you missed our announcement last week, Decoder is now publishing twice weekly. Our classic interviews with CEOs, politicians, and other troublemakers, like this episode, are now on Mondays. And on Thursdays, we're bringing you shorter episodes explaining big topics in the news with the Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. If you have big ideas on what we should cover or who we should talk to on the show, we'd love your feedback. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. We really do read all the emails. Or you can hit me up directly on threads. I'm at Reckless1280. We also have a TikTok, which is a lot of fun. Check it out. It's at DecoderPod. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like the show, leave us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. 
Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Stat. It was edited by Kelly Wright. Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Solomon. We'll see you next time.